Uh, as we begin this morning, I don't think it's any shocker. I think some of you probably already know this about me. I'm a bit of a Disney animation fan. Um, one of my favorites was from the 2002 film uh, Lilo and Stitch. That's one of my favorite ones, and I'm kind of new to that movie. I only discovered it within the last couple years, even though it came out 21 years ago. So, uh, spoiler alert, I'm about to ruin the movie if you've never seen it. But it came out 21 years ago, so I think the spoiler embargo is over. Uh, so just to tell you what the movie is about, Lilo and Stitch is the tale of a young orphan girl's close encounter with the galaxy's most wanted extraterrestrial. Lilo adopts a small, ugly dog, when she names him, whom she names Stitch, and she discovers that, that he would have been the perfect pet if he weren't, in reality, a genetic monster. So uh, th- there's a problem there. Uh, he's crash-landed on Earth. And she loves him to death. And the whole movie, you know, bears that out. So through her love and her unwavering belief in Ohana, the Hawaiian concept of family, Lilo helps unlock Stitch's heart and gives him the ability to care for someone else. And towards the end, we were watching this a few weeks ago, towards the end there's this, I think, pretty powerful moment. Stitch reveals that what he craves most is a family. So draw your attention to the screen. Don't run. Don't make me shoot you. You are expensive. Yes. Yes, that's it. Come quietly. Waiting. For what? Family. You don't have one. I made you. Maybe I could. You're built to destroy. You can never belong. His heart aches to belong. But the evil scientist that created him says, You're built to destroy. You can never belong. In the end, though, this small, broken family takes Stitch in to their ohana. Ohana means family. Family means nobody gets left behind or forgotten. God has made a way to adopt us into family. He's taken the broken ones of this world and drawn them to his son. And he's brought wholeness. He's given us many blessings. And one of the greatest blessings that he's given to us here and now is a family to belong to. He's given us each other. And so we need each other. And that's the title for today's message. This morning we'll work our way through the second half of chapter 10 of Hebrews. And we'll unpack three thoughts. Encourage, believe, and endure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we do have a family to belong to. You've given us brothers and sisters to encourage us along the way. And perhaps this morning there are some with us who haven't yet been adopted into that family. They've been hearing the good news. They're wrestling with the decision as to whether to believe in this Jesus that they've heard about 
Father, this morning, even over the course of this message, I just ask that you would stir their hearts and grant them eyes to see and give them faith to believe in your Son. That they can taste of the goodness of God and and experience this family that you've given to us. Lord, we praise you, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So encourage. Let's read uh, the first few verses here, um, starting in chapter 10, verse 19. We'll read 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, so we see again this word, therefore. We, We often talk about that. It connects the dots between what we looked at last week and what we're looking at in today's passage. And what we have seen, here's the very quick summary of last week's message, is that Jesus, after making the one-time sacrifice for sin, took sin away. He did this amazing sacrifice on our behalf, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so the believer is totally forgiven, totally clean, And for the Christian, sin, past, present, and future has been dealt with. And God has chosen not to remember sins and lawless deeds anymore. God's laws of love and love, love for God and love for people, have now been written on the Christian's heart and mind. And now in verses 19 through 25, the author will use some familiar Old Covenant imagery to apply these New Covenant truths. Now, there's a couple ways I want to unpack this paragraph. First is personally. You, the believer, can have full confidence to enter into the holy place. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. See, the Old Testament high priest only had so much confidence. Never 100%. Otherwise, as the rumor of history tells us, they would not have walked in with a rope tied around their waist. You know, If the other priest standing nearby heard a thud, they were looking around the room going, all right, who's the next high priest? Never 100% sure. But we can have confidence. You can go boldly because of the greater high priest who shed his perfect blood for you. He has made a new and living way open to you through the curtain that is his flesh or his body, reminiscent of the veil that stood between the holy place and the most holy place. This new and living way is not about your track record. It's not about your accomplishments. It's not about even your church attendance. As good as these things can be, it's not about that. It's all about Jesus. Perhaps you wonder why at times you don't feel forgiven or feel clean. Well, in reality, it's not about what we feel. It's about what we know. And it's all about Jesus. 
It's what he's done. See, the enemy, the accuser, as we saw last week, wants you to lose sight of that. He wants you to look at yourself and look at your track record and and your failures. He doesn't want you to look at Jesus and his perfect record. So the confidence that we have is in the perfect one, Jesus, who has declared you to be clean and declared you to be forgiven. The confidence that you have isn't in you, it's in him. This great high priest over the house of God has washed you. He has cleansed your conscience. And so the believer now has a true heart or a clean heart. Do you see that in the text there? A true heart. That's not often how we think of the heart of the believer, is it? We often talk about the Christian's heart like this. Jeremiah seventeen nine: The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, the context of Jeremiah, what he's writing about, is the unbeliever. He's writing about the unbelieving man who has been cursed by God for rejecting him. And certainly, that's a good description of everybody before salvation, before the Holy Spirit changes the heart. So here's the promise of what the Spirit would do with the believer's heart. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So is that new believing heart deceitful and desperately sick or wicked as some translations say? No, it's a new heart of flesh, meaning it's a soft heart. It's a heart that's now washed with pure water, sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. It's now a true heart, a heart that has God's laws of love and love written on it. So is Jesus dwelling in a wicked heart? No, he's cleaned up the heart and he's moved on in. He's not dwelling in wicked hearts anymore. He's cleaned those hearts of the believer. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians five sixteen and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, you are a new creation, a new heart. Verse 23 shows that you can hold fast this confession of hope without wavering. Again, why? Because he is faithful. This is one of those statements that, again, we may not feel like all the time. We don't feel like we're holding fast. We don't feel like we're not wavering. Because the reality is that sometimes we do waver, at least in the flesh. We have these weaknesses in, bo- in our bodies. I, on Tuesday night at our group, called them the weakness of the meat carcass. I'm sorry, it's graphic, but our bodies are weak. But the author here says, without wavering. Now, that doesn't mean that if you do waver, you somehow don't have these promises or you don't, you don't know the gospel or something. All these things that we're seeing in this passage so far are true because they are about and because of Jesus. And so they're true of you. Consider Abraham for a moment. He failed God quite a few times. 
Look, just read through Genesis. Read the account of Abraham. He messed up, and sometimes really big time. He was told his wife would give birth to the son of promise, Isaac. And Abraham got tired of waiting. So what did he do? He devised this plan to help God out a bit in his own flesh. So as a result, he had another son, Ishmael, through a servant woman named Hagar. But he was not the promised son. It's a pretty big mistake. But Paul says this about Abraham in Romans 4, 20 and 21. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What? I mean, that doesn't really mesh with what we see, right? The story of Abraham's life on the surface, at least, seems like he wavered big time, right? He wavered not. God saw it differently. God saw Abraham's faith, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. See, the fight of faith is the struggle to believe the good news about what Jesus has done and what God says about you. And at times we doubt that we're really clean. We doubt that we're forgiven and close because we feel dirty and far. But that doesn't mean that God washes his hands of you. God says, I don't see your wavering. All I see is my child washed by the blood of Jesus. You're perfectly forgiven, perfectly clean because of what Jesus the faithful has done. And so it's not about you or your track record. It's about Jesus and his record is perfect. Now, just so that we can see the whole picture, I'll draw your attention to the screen here. Grace, I don't think my remote's going to work. All right, we had this all planned out of how this was going to work because there's a couple things that I want to show you. But draw your attention to the screen. You'll, you'll see a list here. On one side, confidence to enter, a new and living way. We draw near, we hold fast. And on the, let's see, your left side, no, your right side. <laughs> by the blood of Jesus, through his flesh, since our high priest has been, uh, since our high priest has cleansed and washed, for he is faithful. Now we're going to keep this on the screen while I read through verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the way we're going to unpack this now, we've talked about how these things apply personally. Now we're going to talk about how they apply communally. That is the life of the body. So let's consider for a moment how to stir each other up to love and good works. So the left-hand side are all things that we doubt, we waver in at times as we go through our daily lives, right? We, we are often discouraged and we wonder if we have been forgiven. We lack confidence. We feel like we can't get close to God. We get stuck in our old ways and patterns, not in this new and living way. We, we get stuck in a rut, if you will. The author says that we as brothers and sisters in Christ, the body of the church, are to encourage one another. So let us encourage one another in all of these things. Encourage confidence. Encourage living in the new and living way. 
encourage each other to draw near, to hold fast and to love and do good deeds for each other. Why? Because of all those amazing things on the right-hand side. We have all those things on the left because of all these things on the right. So you can encourage each other in all of those things. There's just nothing better than the gospel. This will stimulate you and motivate you to love and serve. Perhaps a better way to say that is what will bubble out of you as you keep taking in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is love and encouragement for others. These things are what will start to appear. You'll encourage your brothers and sisters in all of these things. So take in the wonderful news that God has loved you first, that he's pursued you, that he sent Christ for you, and that he now indwells you with his spirit. He's cleansed you, forgiven you, and made you righteous. He delights in you. So it's not just that God loves you. He actually likes you. Imagine that. How many of you who have children tell your kids all the time, I love you? But how many of them know that you actually enjoy them? That you enjoy spending time with them? God not only loves us, he likes us. So take that wonderful news in. And what this draws out of us is what has already been written on our hearts. It's God's love for people and God giving this love so that we can love him in return. He loved us first. Now we have all heard these two verses. Grace, you can go to the the verse now. Um, We've all heard these verses, verses 24 and 25, as a means of fussing about church attendance, right? Is that really what's in sight? No, not really. It's simple. The author wants Christians to get together. Where two or three are gathered, God is there. So certainly includes getting together on Sunday morning for this larger assembly. But it's anytime we're together. So go get coffee. Go have lunch. Get together in each other's homes. Get involved in a group. Attend the larger assembly. What is the reason? So that we can encourage each other in the good news. That we can build each other up. Getting together is important. Not so we can count roll. Not so that we can make sure you're here every week. But because you and I need each other. What you'll find as well, I already mentioned it in my prayer is as we get together in the normal walk of the life of the church, is that sometimes you'll have people who are attending who are undecided. Maybe for months, maybe for years even. Someone who hasn't believed the good news yet. That's what was happening at the time of this letter written to the Hebrews. We've seen it many times now. Some were starting to abandon getting together. They were going back to the temple in the old ways. Now, perhaps some were believers and they just needed to be drawn back. That does happen. We get tired, we get worn, and all of a sudden it's been several weeks and you haven't seen somebody. Give them a call. But I think the majority of what this is talking about are those who haven't yet believed. They're wrestling with this decision and they've decided to go back to the old ways. And so in this next section that we're going to read here, we find another warning. 
and it's written to the unbeliever. It's, it's a warning to believe. So let's read starting in verse 26. We'll go through verse 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this is a rather intense warning, much like what we saw in Hebrews chapter 6. We looked at that in February, so I expect you fully to remember every word of what was said. (laughs) I don't remember every word. I said it. Along with this passage, these two passages have been often used to teach that Christians can somehow lose their salvation. If you sin willingly or too often, then the grace of God will run out for you. It sounds like what's being said is that the blood of Jesus is effective up to a certain point and then no more. And taken out of context, it could seem to indicate something like that. But this is a letter and it's to be taken as a whole. It's not to be chopped up into pieces and thrown on bumper stickers as, uh, here's my point and prove it, microphone drop. We need to understand this in the context of what has been spoken so far. And what has been said, back when we looked at chapter 3, again, I expect you to remember exactly what was said. I asked you to highlight or underline the word unbelief in chapter 3, verse 19. When we looked at chapter 6, I again pointed the significance of that word out. Here again in chapter 10, I want to draw your attention to it. So uh, let's have a refresher because the test is coming soon. Hebrews 3.19. So we see that they, that is the generation of Israel, that fled Egyptian captivity, were unable to enter because of unbelief. What were they unable to enter? The promised land. Rest. What is the sin that has been in sight from the beginning of this letter? It's the sin of unbelief. It's the sin of rejecting the message of the gospel. This is the sin. It's not lying, cheating, or stealing that sends people to hell. It's rejecting Jesus that sends people to hell. It's unbelief. All other sins are a result of unbelief. Humanity is born in sin. We have this nature of sin. We have a nature of rejecting God and his gospel. We're at war with God by nature. That's how we're described in the scriptures. It's a nature that is corrupted by Adam's fall, and it's inclined towards every action of sin. This warning was directly written to those Jewish people who had encountered Christians. They've been a part of a church. They have heard the good news preached about this man, Jesus, that they perhaps even saw with their own eyes crucified. They've been told about this once and for all sacrifice, heard it over and over, perhaps even for months, possibly years. They've gained some knowledge of the truth, but they've decided to reject it. They've straddled that line of law and gospel, and they've decided to go back to the old ways of animal sacrifices, to go back to the old way of temple worship. 
what sacrifice is left for such a person. After hearing that the old is obsolete and that the animal sacrifices are now an insult to God, you can't just go back to that. God won't accept it. There are no more sacrifices for sin. Jesus' death was a one-time, once-for-all sacrifice. There's nothing left to be done. And so the original recipients of this letter would know what this is about. They would know that this is about the sin of their forefathers, the sin of unbelief. This was the way Israel sinned so often. Now, certainly we would see other actions of sin. They would give in to idolatry. They would give in to the ways and customs of the people around them. But where did it start? It started with unbelief. Some in this first audience of this letter had gotten acquainted with the gospel. And they willfully rejected it. And so verse 26 is not about the Christian, it's about someone who is a rejecter, either in favor of Judaism, as seen throughout this letter, or as in our time, for anything outside of faith in Christ alone. Verse 27 shows the seriousness of sin. What will someone who remains in unbelief, willfully unbelieving, experience? In the end, it's judgment. And the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So who's consumed? It's not God's children. It's not those who have maybe strayed a bit. It's his enemies. What happened to those who rejected Moses and his message? They died in the wilderness. We saw that in chapter 3. What happens if you reject Jesus and his message? Nothing less. It's death. Eternally. Verse 29. uh, It's a bit of a complex verse here. Let's read it. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So this verse is a rhetorical question. It's a thought-provoking question. The author wants you to think. He wants you to sit with this a bit and think about it. What does a person deserve? See, here's the thing. We all, by God's We all by nature deserve God's wrath. God's mercy means that those who have believed don't experience what we deserve. If grace is receiving what we didn't deserve, mercy is not receiving what we did deserve. Jesus experienced it for us, and it was death. Scholars have argued about this phrase in verse 29, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. There are a few ways you could interpret it, but I want to just share the two likeliest. One view says that the he should actually be translated as it, meaning the one rejecting the gospel has profaned the blood of the covenant by which it, the new covenant, was sanctified. A second view says that the he is Christ, And remembering that the word sanctified means to be set apart, it would read, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, Jesus, was set apart. This second view is what I believe the author is conveying, conveying here. The one who remains in unbelief despite hearing the good news despite uh, being a part of this church and seeing lives transformed, tramples underfoot the Son of God, such a person profanes or treats as nothing the blood of the covenant, which has set Jesus apart from all other men, all other priests, all other gods, 
To reject grace in favor of the law is an insult of the highest order to the spirit of grace. Verses 30 and 31, for we know him who said vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So no one is exempt. Israel, God's chosen people, couldn't point back to their heritage, their lineage, their law-keeping. Jesus is the only way. There is no other way. And so it indeed is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God when you're pointing to yourself, when you're pointing to the old ways, when you're trying to earn favor. But this is not written to the believer. As the author has said before, there are better things for the one who has believed. The one who has believed will endure. Let's read verses 32 through 39. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. God doesn't forget what you've been through. See, the church receiving this letter has clearly experienced persecution, hostility, scorn, affliction. They've witnessed others being persecuted. They've even had their property plundered. Now, again, we must keep in mind that some who received this letter were those who departed and rejected Christ eventually here. And so perhaps one of the reasons, and we've mentioned this a few times, that they've left is this persecution that they experienced was kind of like the icing on the cake. And they, they departed. But the encouragement to one who is a believer is the same encouragement that we would give to the one who was an unbeliever. It's to believe. And so this encouragement to the believer is to continue to believe. The believer is able to experience these sufferings strengthened by the grace of God. Verse 34 indicates that in prison, those being persecuted were kind to their fellow prisoners and perhaps their jailers as well. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. So because of their Christian beliefs, people came in and took their property. Their belongings and their homes were seized for associating with Christ. This is a challenging verse. And the reality is that this wasn't by any means pleasant or easy. It would have been incredibly painful and difficult to go through this. It doesn't mean that these people were just happy to experience these difficulties. They were able to look at their suffering and see it in light of what they had in Christ. A better possession and an abiding one. Verse 35 speaks of a great reward. These people were not holding on merely or only because they kept thinking of a future mansion, a future crown, streets of gold, or something that awaited them. 
Those are wonderful things. Certainly future joy and what awaits us in eternity is a wonderful promise. I don't mean to take that lightly. We'll talk about future promises in the coming weeks. But this reward is also a present reality. What is this possession? What has Hebrews shown us? Let's take a flyover of the book of Hebrews. We who have believed have been given Jesus, the Son of God, greater than all the angels, all the kings and nations and rulers and principalities of this world. We've been set free from Satan and the fear of death. We have for ourselves Jesus as a merciful and faithful high priest. We have eternal rest in the age to come. We can experience full assurance of hope until the end. Jesus is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We are told that Jesus saves to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him and that he will always live to make intercession for us. In Jesus, we have a better covenant enacted on better promises. We have been told that the sacrifice for sin offered by Jesus has perfectly forgiven and finally and totally cleaned us forever. This better and abiding possession by which we have confidence and will endure is nothing less than Jesus himself. This is the hope given to the believer so that when suffering comes, and it will. Though we are shaken, though we hurt, though we grieve, we are not abandoned in it. We have with us Jesus who sympathizes with our weaknesses. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We have Christ. He is this treasure in jars of clay. And as we behold Christ, as we meditate upon the truths of the gospel, this confidence and this assurance grows. Verses 37 and 38, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Jesus is the coming one. He will return And all the wrongs will be righted. All the suffering undone. The righteous one seen here in verse 38 is the one who has believed and been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. So now the big question, am I going to shrink back? Will God take no pleasure in me? So we need to see that the author is kind of setting up or teeing up verse 39. Verse 39 says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Similarly, he said in Hebrews 6, 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So the author is saying, hey, I know I freaked you out a bit with the way that I worded that, the way that I wrote this warning. I know you're sitting there wondering, is is that me? Am I going to shrink back? Am I wandering? Am I wavering? Am I backsliding like Abraham, like David? Jesus will bring back those who are his. Philippians 1, 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
And jumping ahead a few weeks, Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, our better and abiding possession, will perfect and complete his work in you. And so as we conclude this, I'd like to tie all of this back to the exhortation of verses 24 and 25 about getting together, about encouraging one another, stirring each other up to good works and and love. One of the greatest means of endurance that God has gifted us is one another. Brothers and sisters, let us be encouraged by those who endured, those who suffered together, those who experienced loss together, they experienced trial and tragedy together. They pointed each other to the better and abiding possession, Jesus Christ. And as we will soon see, their stories cheer us onward. I was saving this for when we get there, but when I walked, not ran, the 5K, I was still overwhelmed by the amount of people standing on the sides going, keep going, keep going, you got this, you got this, keep going, keep going, keep going. As we'll see in this next chapter, the stories of these men and women of faith cheer us on, tell us to keep going. So when we suffer or face challenges of all sorts, God will use each of us, the members of this body, the members of the body of Christ to bring the love of Christ to the one in need. When we drift and when we doubt, when we look to the old ways, when we're tempted by those things, God will use our brothers and sisters to remind us of the gospel. Now lately, I've witnessed many suffering here in this body. I've witnessed a lot of grief lately. It seems we've been in a season of grief. But I've been so encouraged by the testimony that many have shared that they are experiencing the love of Christ in ways that they had never imagined. They feel and sense the love of Christ as people are praying for them, as people are coming alongside of them, giving them a hug, encouraging them. All I can say to that is keep going. Keep loving. Let's encourage each other in the confidence and hope that we have. Remember that this new and living way has been opened to us. Let us draw near together. Let's encourage one another to hold fast in the face of suffering. And all of this is because of what Jesus, our better promise, our abiding possession, our true hope, the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls, the great high priest, who alone is faithful and true. It's all because of him. Because he died and rose again, we have total forgiveness, total cleansing, and a new and true heart. We have a family to which we now belong. We were created with hearts ruined by sin. Our bent was towards destruction. Satan was saying, you'll never belong. But we've been adopted in, brought into a family. And so let's encourage each other to believe and to endure.